Yeah, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, we're just, uh, this morning we're continuing our series through Romans, uh, finishing up Romans 8 uh, this morning. So uh, let's go ahead and pray and we'll just, we'll dive right in. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we just thank you for the opportunity to gather together uh, this morning, this Lord's Day. Lord, I pray that uh, you would be with us as we study your word, uh, in particular Romans 8, such an important chapter. Lord, I pray that, um, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our hearts uh, to the truths here uh, contained. Lord, that you would comfort us uh, in the midst of our suffering. Lord, that you would prepare us, Lord, for suffering as we um, live in this world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, just a quick review of last week. Uh, you know, we're in Romans 8. First half of Romans 8 is really addressing our present blessings in Christ, right? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's like Romans 8 1. It's a really big verse, um, right? And he, he kind of explained, uh, we kind of explained how what this meant was that we had passed through the final judgment, right? That in the death of Christ, the final judgment was meted out. And in our union with Christ, we pass through that final judgment, right? We're on the other end of that final judgment. It's already taken place uh, in our behalf on Christ. This brings us into a communion, a, a fellowship, right, with the triune God. And it kind of crescendoed into that we are sons and daughters of God, right? Our adoption, that we are children of God. And he's actually going to be continuing this thought this morning, but Paul sort of turns in the latter half of Romans towards our future hope, right? Our, our, the future glory. So if, if it's true that we're on the other side of that judgment day, so to say, in our union with Christ, what about that day, right? What is that, what is that glory that awaits us? And, and can we be sure that we will get there, right? These are the things that he's addressing. So just a quick outline. Uh, it's interesting that he, as he turns towards our future hope, uh, he also turns to suffering, Right, the present suffering that the children of God and creation itself suffer now with hope of glory in the future. And this is kind of a tension that Paul presents today as he turns towards our future hope. And then he gives us three reasons why we should have hope for this future glory. Uh, number one, because we suffer with faith, and we'll talk about all of these. Two, uh, because the Spirit intercedes for us. And three, because God will preserve us. And at the end, he kind of gets to an application. What do we say about, what do we say to all of this? Okay, well, now what? Right? And the application is just resting in Christ. Right? If this is true, that we will be preserved, that we will be kept, that we do have hope for future glory in the midst of our suffering, what do we say to all this? What is the application of all this? And it is that we rest in Christ, that we have faith in Christ alone. So we got a lot to cover this morning. Um, and so, you know, we're not going to be as in-depth in the text um, as we were last week. So if you do have questions throughout, jot them down, and when we get to the question times, uh, we'll, we'll talk about it. Um, so Romans 8, 17 through 22. Anybody want to take that? Any readers? Any volunteers? Ken. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, 
but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So the first thing that's addressed here is the certainty of suffering. Right. If children, if you are children, right, we saw last week the crescendo there, adoption, your sons and daughters of God. If you are children, then you're heirs, right? You're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You will inherit glory, right? That's what he's saying there. If you're children, you have an inheritance and it's glory provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. If we are to have hope, right, that we will inherit life with God in glory, then we should expect suffering as the children of God. You know, many atheists um, actually deny God's existence, at least the, the God of Scripture, because they say if God existed and He's good as Scripture says He is, then His children wouldn't suffer. That's one of the reasons that atheists actually, uh, an argument that they use, and I've actually encountered personally, of why the God of Scripture is not real. is because His children suffer. And if you say that this God is good, why would His children suffer? Right? Why do Christians suffer? They, they challenge uh, God in a moral way in that sense. And what they're not understanding here is that suffering is not only certain, but necessary. It's very interesting that as Paul turns towards future, ble- uh, away from present blessing towards our future hope, uh, in a sense, he's not turning from present blessing. Because the economy of Scripture tells us that suffering is a blessing, Right? That's because suffering is a means by which God sanctifies, by which God keeps us and you know, uh, conforms us to the image of Christ and brings us to glory with him. So the argument that God is not good because we suffer as his children is false, right? Because how did, what, what do we see in the life of Christ, right? Suffering to glory. Pastor Nathan? Yeah, absolutely, which we're going we're gonna to get to, Job, uh, a bit in the application uh, towards the end. But yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a removal of God's sovereignty over our suffering and his goodness over our suffering to, to make that case. Now, also, not only do the children of God suffer, but Paul says that creation suffers, right? Under the fallenness of all things. For creation was subjected to futility. Right? Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Certainty of suffering. You know, suffering is, is certain not only that we, we see that we suffer, but also creation. Right? Genesis 3.17, at the fall, God turns to Adam, and what does he say? He doesn't say, you know, cursed is you, but cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. You know, creation was made to bring forth life, to bring forth sustenance, right? To bring food, uh, to bring forth food and and the things that, you know, we would eat and and be sustained on and would grow in. And now, rather than providing life, creation provides thorns, thistles, right? Man has to work the ground to cultivate and bring forth that life. And so even creation is suffering under that futility, in fact, Genesis 3, uh, 3.19, um, God says to Adam, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, 
for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You know, creation, rather than giving life, right, it's where we put our dead, right? It's Abraham burying Sarah in a cave, right? So creation, rather than giving forth life, is now actually taking in the dead and is suffering under that futility because it was made to give life. So not only is suffering certain for us, it's also for creation as well. This means, as we'll see, that not only are the children of God redeemed in that sense, but all of creation is as well in Christ. But also, in tension with this, we see the certainty of glory, right? Provided you suffer with him, you will be glorified. Paul says in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's important we'll kind of talk about kind of what does he mean revealed, right? Like that glory is already a present reality, right? It's just awaiting revelation. That's how certain it is. And Paul's even going to talk about our glorification in the past tense because it's so certain. So what is this glory? Uh, Revelation 21, 1 through 6, uh, John sees a picture of the new creation, of the church uh, in the new creation. He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The first thing we see in the glory that awaits us is the presence of God. Right? We're going to get to this, but you know, ultimate suffering is the absence of God. So ultimate glory is the full presence of God. John says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, right? So a fullness of joy and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning. So not only is there a fullness of life, but there's no opportunity for mourning, right? There's no chance that uh, we could lose the presence of God, right? that we could be rejected from that new creation. Nor crying, right? So not only does he wipe away our tears, but he preserves us in that fullness of joy. No crying, no pain anymore, so there's no suffering. For the former things have passed away. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. That is full and free redemption, where the tree of life from the garden that was lost is now springing forth and giving life to this new Jerusalem, this new creation. That is the certain glory that awaits us. The other thing I want you to notice here is it's the glory of adoption. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is the glory of adoption. Notice the kind of language of revealed, right? Like creation is waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. We're already adopted as sons, but somehow we're still waiting for the adoption of sons, right? We have the first fruits of the Spirit, but we're still waiting. The point here is that we already have everything we just saw in Revelation, right? In a sense. We have the presence of God, fullness of joy in Christ, life 
and redemption. Right? Because we're justified, adopted, sanctified. We will be glorified. And we await the revelation of these things, along with creation. Right? So it's the spiritual realities um, will be revealed as our bodies are transformed. Our souls are, are once again brought to our bodies, those who have passed away. And we are transformed. And the inward declaration of righteous, right, of being a child of God, becomes an outward revelation. We are fully revealing what is already true about us. Notice too, creation's groans in the pains of childbirth. That's a beautiful imagery that Paul's using here. So as we saw, creation takes in death, right? As saints die, as as people die, they go into the ground. They return to the ground. And and Paul is saying here that creation is uh, pregnant with the dead. And they will will be raised and, and creation will give forth life again. Right? In the new creation, creation and man will live in harmony and, and creation will give sustenance in life and, and you know, we will be able to enjoy creation. And the fallenness that creation was subjected to, that futility, will be no more. It's a beautiful imagery. Yep? Yeah. Yeah. We come from the dust, but it's a different creation. It's the redemptive creation. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yep. Is it time for questions? It is time for questions. Yeah. So I just wanted to uh, ask if this illustration uh, brings out the right now, not yet aspect of Mm -hmm. adoption. So would would it be similar to, say, as a child, I, I have been adopted by papers have been signed. I'm adopted, but I haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. I'm on the way over there. <laughs> and then when I get to finally meet them and embrace them mm. as mom and dad's adopted son, is that Yeah. Or am I off? No, that's a great analogy, uh, especially in the sense that you're not less of a child when you're in that other country. Right? You've been adopted. You're not less of a child. You're not more of their child when you actually get there. Right, like your status as a child doesn't change. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Already not yet. I didn't even bring that up, you guys. And this already not yet. I know, shaking your head. If you don't know, Kim wrote a paper on that. Uh, I I read that this week to kind of prepare for this, and so good, so good. I know it's it's an it's an amazing um, doctrine that we often focus on, like justification and sanctification. You know. Um, but adoption is just, it's a beautiful doctrine. Any other questions, thoughts, comments? Romans 8, 23 through 30. All right, so he's kind of held out this tension, right, that there will be suffering, but there will be glory. Just as certain suffering, just as, uh, as certain as we should be that we will suffer, we should be as certain that we will be glorified. And... He's kind of laid that out, and now he turns towards, uh, well, how do we know this, right? right? He begins, and not only the creation that groans, but you groan as well. Where's our hope? How do we have hope that we will be glorified? And he's going to give three reasons here uh, that we'll look at. So anybody want to read this massive text? Jordan? Yep. 
not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through verses from And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God knew, he also suggested to be confirmed the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he suggested, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Amen. Thank you, Jordan. All right. Reason number one for our hope. How do we know we will be glorified? We struggle under suffering with faith. Verse 23, And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Two things here. Uh, first of all, we, along with creation, groan under suffering. Because suffering sanctifies... Suffering does not mean you're not a child of God. Right? Oftentimes it's an assurance that you are a child of God. God is sanctifying you in the midst of your suffering. Right? And there's a connection here that we'll see uh, between what's not seen and, and what's seen. Um, and oftentimes we judge our adoption, our sonship, our relationship with, with God regard, uh, you know, according to our circumstances and what we're going through. Um, we give credence to that atheist argument that either we aren't Christian or if we are, God is immoral. Rather, Suffering sanctifies us. So if you're suffering, you're being sanctified, right? So there's a sign of assurance and hope there because we suffer. Now, of course, sin is not an assurance of adoption and redemption, right? But struggling and groaning under sin, like he says here, is. You know, a lot of times people will come to me and say, I just, I can't believe I'm a Christian because I sin so much. How could someone as, as wretched as me, someone as sinful as me, how could I be a Christian. And if I know them, I usually start with, well, the mere fact that you're struggling with that is a good sign, right? Because generally speaking, atheists don't struggle with sin and unrighteousness. But if you're struggling with your sin, there's a good sign that, that you know, you are a child of God. Uh, but of course, you know, just suffering and, and just, right, sinning and struggling under that sin isn't in itself giving us hope. Rather, faith. We, along with creation, we wait for redemption, right? Paul says uh, that we do so even patiently, right? For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Suffering apart from faith does us no good. Suffering is intended to strengthen your faith, to strengthen your dependency upon Christ in the midst of your suffering, upon God and His goodness and His sovereignty in the midst of your suffering. And to go through suffering not with faith, right? Not with patience, waiting for the redemption of our bodies, but rather to go through suffering, you know, and turning to other things, right? Our spouses or, you know, um, substance abuse, those sorts of things, just burying yourself in your work even, um, or your schoolwork, uh, it does no good. Your suffering will do you no good if it is apart from faith. 
two other places, First uh, Peter, right? That famous passage where First Peter, uh, he's talking about you suffer and it's uh, refining your faith. First uh, Peter one six through nine, right? And he gets gets done with talking about how your suffering is is refining your faith as gold is tested with fire. Uh, and then what does he say right after that? You do not know him, but you love him. You've not seen him, right? But you believe in him. So there's this connection between what's not seen, um, right, which is Christ and our redemption and what's held out for us in glory, and what's seen, which is suffering, right? So don't waste your suffering. I know that's so easy to say, right? It's so much harder to do. But in the midst of our suffering, have faith, right? Have faith that, you know, not that God's going to end your earthly suffering, right? That's not going to happen. It may happen in certain situations, but we see in the New Testament that the church age is an age of suffering. It's an age of persecution. But have faith in Christ that even in the midst of your suffering, you're not condemned. Right? You're still right before the Father. Secondly, uh, the Spirit intercedes and keeps us. Uh, even if you <laughs> struggle with faith, in the midst of your suffering, which most of us do, of course. Um, the Spirit goes before the Father on our behalf. The Spirit intercedes for our behalf, helping us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You know, one of the worst parts of suffering. One of the worst things to happen in suffering is silence, right? Isolation. You open up to your friends or your loved ones about your suffering uh, and you just get back silence. Not the good kind of silence where they're just like listening to you, but the silence of like, I don't know what to say. I'm at a loss for words and I just, I don't know what to say. And that can, that can be, you know, hurtful or even isolation. You know, uh, a lot of times in the midst of suffering, uh, we isolate ourselves, right? It's, uh, it's what's familiar a lot of times. And so we'll pull away from the church and, and our loved ones and those who could help us. And ultimately, the Holy Spirit, going before the Father with groans too deep for words, ensures that isolation and silence from God or even towards God is impossible. In the midst of our suffering, when we want to just isolate ourselves, when we you know, want to just be quiet, Right? Or when, when we feel like, who could even say the right words to me in the midst of this suffering? The Spirit goes before the Father, interceding on our behalf. Rather than succumbing to our suffering, right, falling away from God, which, would, what, which is what would happen, the Spirit keeps us in the grace of God by going before the throne. Right? I mean, this is preserving us to glory. This is keeping us in Christ to, to glory. Even Christians, you know, in the midst of suffering, sometimes we don't pray, right? Sometimes we abandon God, so to say, and we say, I'm not going to talk to God in the midst of this. That's terrible. We shouldn't do that. But when we do that, the Spirit goes before the Father. And so the point here is don't waste your suffering. Pray. I know, again, it's really easy to say, but, you know, uh, Pastor Nathan preached, it was a little while ago, on, on lamenting. Um, and just the importance of, of lamenting and, and, and lamenting in prayer. 
Um, and a lot of times, what that, that's what that looks like, is just lamenting. You know, when, when you have no words, when you're suffering so much that you just, you have no words, but you know that the Holy Spirit is keeping you. Right? The Holy Spirit is interceding on your behalf before the throne of God. You go before the throne and you just say, God, this hurts. This hurts. Yep. Could you explain, so Paul says here, the Spirit himself intercedes for us. We know that Jesus also intercedes for us. Yeah. Maybe could you explain the difference or the distinction between how Christ intercedes for us and how the Spirit intercedes for us? Yeah. Uh, we're going to get to that a little later, but... Um, the, John Murray says it really great. He says, uh, Christ intercedes for us uh, in the throne room of God, and the Spirit intercedes for us in the theater of our heart. Uh, so we have an intercessor who is going before God, right, and bringing us before God as righteous, right, interceding on our behalf, presenting his righteousness before the Father as our righteousness is what we'll, we'll talk about. And we also have the Spirit of God here that is also taking us to the Father, right? Taking our prayers to the Father, interceding. So we have both Christ and the Spirit uh, interceding. What is it that uh, they're both called the same in Advocate. Advocate? Yeah, where is that in John? Right, where, where Christ says, I will send you another helper, but it's actually another advocate. That's what Christ says to the disciples. So, it's a really good point. Number three, God will preserve and redeem us. Super famous Calvinistic passage here. Uh, I'm not going to go into predestination because Pastor Nathan's teaching Romans 9 coming up. <laughs> um, yeah, you did. You did. Um, so Pastor Nathan has preached on this text. What I do want you to notice here uh, is the connection between verse 28 and everything that follows. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Whom he predestined, he also called. Whom he called, he also justified whom he justified, he also glorified. Our greatest good is not earthly blessing or material blessing, right? Our greatest good is the final and full redemption of our bodies. It's to be conformed to the image of Christ. It's to be brought into the presence of God forever in glory. That's what the four is there for, right? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, and then he goes into that chain. You have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, and you will be. This is God preserving us and keeping us in the midst of our suffering. You know, glorification there uh, to be glorified, it's actually uh, in the past tense. Right? Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Right? It is so certain. It is such a certain fact that this will take place, that it's positioned in the past tense. This is the good that this verse means, right? It's often like taken out of context, put on coffee mugs that you buy at Lifeway or whatever, right? That God, uh, he, uh, all things work together for the good of those who love him. The best way to put this would be, um, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for their sanctification, for their perseverance, for their glory. Your suffering, therefore, is never wasted. 
because God uses it to sanctify, to preserve you to glory. That's our hope. Rather than this text being just a, a, you know, a, a battering ram in the most negative sense on the Calvinist-Arminian debate, this text is assurance, as election always is. Assurance that God will keep us, God will preserve us to glory in the midst of our suffering. Therefore, pursue conformity to Christ. It's like the hardest part, right? Well, I mean, sure, you know, I can have faith. Uh, it may be small. And I can pray. My prayers are not going to be great. But obey? You mean in the midst of my suffering, you want me to obey? You want me to actually, like, go to church? Uh, yeah. Like, yes, go to church. Receive the means of grace, right? Spend time in Scripture, Right? Open up to your brothers and sisters. Edify, encourage the church. Build the church up. In the midst of your suffering, serve the church. Right? It'll take you out of your suffering, away from yourself, away from being so self-focused on what you're going through and turning towards what others are going through and how you can help them and, and build them up. It's counterproductive, right? It's, it's uh, what we think would be the last thing that would work and that would help us. But pursuing conformity to Christ in the midst of our suffering that's intended to conform us to the image of Christ of course. Pastor Nathan. Reminded when I preached through John and uh, we saw the picture of Jesus, he, he knew he had 24 hours to live. <laughs> and what did he do? His, his, his last mm. act, spending the time with his disciples, washing their feet. Yeah. Um, he was in the midst of the great suffering. He was in the midst of that, mm. uh, uh, you know, the end of his life. Mm. And, and his focus was still on serving people. Yeah. Yeah. And upon fulfilling to the very end the commission which the Lord, his Father, set before him. So that serves as a model and example for us. Yeah. I mean, you could even kind of expand that into the whole purpose of his suffering was in service of the church. You know? And in his pursuit of that. It's really good. Questions, thoughts, comments on those three we will suffer. Uh, suffering does not mean that you aren't a child of God. It's an assurance. Uh, do not suffer apart from faith, right? Um, we will be preserved by God, not only because the Spirit goes before the Father, um, but because our suffering is a means by which God preserves us. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. So, and we, I had a whole slide on that, and I deleted it because I knew someone was going to ask. So, thank you. Um, but uh, I think there is a difference between suffering for Christ's sake, right, a gospel suffering, uh, and suffering in general, like cancer and, and depression and those sorts of things. I think both are addressed, um, right? Because he says, uh, provided we suffer with Him, right, with Christ. Uh, so there's a sense in which that's present, but also, uh, you know, we groan inwardly under the futility of, of the fallenness of the world. So those are things like cancer, uh, right? Because cancer is, is coming about because of the fallenness of the world. So I think both are present, um, and I, but I do think there is a difference. Um, 
I don't think there's a difference in you know, the application and, and how we get through those sufferings. But yeah, there is definitely a difference. I think both are being addressed. That's a good question. Anything else? Speaking on the isolation part. Yep. Do you not feel like these one-on-one discipleships are a good way to not oh. be isolated? Oh, yeah. I feel like when I'm meeting with the person I'm meeting with, I feel like a lot comes out. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's easier for, I think, all of us to isolate even in a group, yeah. right? And let others talk, let others open up, and you can kind of sit back and remain isolated uh, and kind of, you know, within yourself. But one-on-one, you know, that's, you can't do that one-on-one. Yeah, right. No, there's a place for that. Yeah. Yeah. Great plug for discipleship. Thank you, Luke. Uh, if you're not meeting with someone, reach out to Kim. Um, I know it's been a great blessing for me in that sense of not isolating um, and really being able to open up. Because a lot of times you can't have those kind of conversations Sunday morning with a lot of people standing around. A lot of things you need to talk about are, you know, not going to be great for a lot of people hearing and things like that. And that one-on-one um, really helps in accountability and, and things like that. So that's a really good point. All right, application. What do we to say to all of these things? Okay, if all of this is true, what do we say to all of this? What do we, how do we live? You might want to read this. You volunteers, Pastor Nathan, go for it. He's pointing at you. It's all you, man.
Awesome. Such a good passage. Uh, there's a couple things that Paul's addressing here. He's kind of answering these, okay, well, now what? Uh, and he does so in question form. The first is kind of a summary. Who can be against us if God is for us? Right? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I want you to notice this is not a promise of an adversary free life. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? The answer is not nobody. Right? The answer, rather, is that those who are against you, those who will be against you, and be assured there will be people against you, they cannot bring you true harm. That's what Paul is saying here. You know, as we've sort of um, worked through this, um, it's, been, it's a promise throughout the Gospels that Christ makes to the church, that as they treated me, they will treat you, right? He says, if they called the master of the house, if they called me Beelzebub, right? If they called me like the prince of demons, how much more will they malign those of his household? How much, will, how much more will they malign those of the church? But do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You know, you nor Satan can destroy your soul, right? No persecution that you will face, no suffering, depression, cancer can, can destroy your soul. Only God can. And Paul's saying here, in Christ, he's for you. He's not against you, right? This God who can destroy your soul is not against you. And notice too the spiritual language here. Like how will he not with him graciously give us all things. This is definitely soteriological, right? This is not a promise for material blessing either, right? You may be poor. You may lose everything. Haven't we seen that in Job, right? But what you won't lose is your God. So what's our hope in the midst of suffering? You know, many people encourage us to put our hope that our earthly suffering will end, right? And there's a good hope to have there that God does love us and he loves his children and he has promised that there will be seasons of suffering, but also seasons where that suffering ends, right? And so there will be a wax and wane there. But our ultimate hope is not that our suffering will end, not that we won't be poor or won't face cancer or won't face persecution or won't be maligned like he says here in Matthew. Our ultimate hope is that God is for us, even in the midst of our suffering, He's for us in Christ. And He will graciously give us all things in Christ. Sanctification, right? Perseverance, ultimately glory. That's our hope in the midst of our suffering. Also, uh, who can condemn us if God is for us? It's kind of getting more at that spiritual level, right? Who shall bring any charge against God elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Right? More than that, who was raised, as Pastor Ethan has already pointed out, who is at the right hand of God, who, inter- who indeed is interceding for us. Right? So there's two intercessors here, the Spirit and Christ in this passage. Nobody can condemn us because Christ is our high priest. There's two things that Paul mentions here. Right? The work of Christ on the cross then, Christ Jesus is the one who died, and the work of Christ in heaven now. Right? He intercedes on our behalf as our priest, 
Christ was the sacrifice on our behalf. That's why there is no condemnation. Because our priest, our high priest, who is without sin, who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, died in our place as the sacrifice. And then the work of Christ in heaven now. He's at the right hand of God. He's interceding on our behalf. Uh, You know, why does this matter in the midst of suffering? Right? I mean, that's kind of the question here. It's like, okay, I'm suffering. This doesn't, get, this doesn't end my suffering. This isn't addressing my suffering directly. A great passage, uh, Acts 7. Uh, you know, Stephen has basically told the Jews that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And they pick up rocks and they stone him. And he's being beat to death by rocks. And he looks up into heaven full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Christ is standing. He's not sitting at the right hand of God. This is courtroom language. In the midst of Stephen being stoned and beaten to death, in the midst of utter suffering, Christ is standing in the courtroom of God on behalf of Stephen right? On behalf of Stephen, presenting his case as his righteousness. In the midst of your suffering, the worst suffering you could possibly face, even death by getting hit by rocks. In the midst of your suffering, Christ stands pleading your case that you are righteous in him before the Father. There is no suffering, nothing that you can face, no persecution that can make you uncondemned before the Father because in the midst of your suffering, Christ is standing in the courtroom of God. That's why this matters in the midst of our suffering. What that means is that no one can separate you. No suffering can separate you from God. Notice the confidence here. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for our sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Even if we are being slaughtered like sheep, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. If nobody is against you, if no one can accuse you, if no one can condemn you, not even yourself, you can't make you, yourself uncondemned before the Father, who can separate you from the love of Christ? You know, Job, uh, Pastor Nathan has, has mentioned in his sermons that Job's ultimate suffering, right, his ultimate pain is not what he lost in the materials that he lost, the the family that he lost, although that pain is real, right? That suffering is real. It's not in the constant, uh, his friends just constantly bringing up his family and his kids being lost. It's not what his friends are saying. It's that he feels like he lost his God, right? Job 10, 1 through 2, I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. The God who was for him, he believes is now against him. Pastor Nathan. Yeah, in Paul's writing to the church where persecution was a very present reality, mm. certainly in Rome it was on the horizon. Yep, yep. You know, and how easy uh, he was writing people who would think very 
coming from <laughs> yeah. literally. Yeah. Um, this must mean that God is against me. Mm. That I am condemned, that I'm being punished, just yeah. just like Job. Mm. And he's writing to say, no, you've got to separate that from the spiritual reality that there is no condemnation. And yeah. these things are not the judgment of God if you are in Christ. Right. And these things cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ. Mm. Yeah. These are actual ways in which we are more than conquerors. Yeah, yeah. You conquer through dying. That's how the, our, our Messiah, our Savior, yeah. conquered through suffering and dying. Definitely getting ahead of me there. <laughs> uh, that's a great point. Uh, you know, far from surviving in our trials, right? Our trials are the means by which God conforms us to Christ. We don't survive, we conquer through Him who loved us, right? And like Pastor Nathan said, that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the nature of Christianity is that we conquer through suffering like Christ conquered through suffering. Fesco says, uh, the design of God and the afflictions of his people is not to satisfy the demands of justice. That's been done in the suffering of Christ. But to prepare them to participate in his glory, to conform them, to sanctify them in holiness. Finally, in conclusion, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, that includes you, you are part of creation, you will not be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Glory with God in the future is just as certain as suffering today. We should have hope, right? Because suffering doesn't mean you're not a child of God. Generally speaking, it means you are. If you suffer with faith. In the midst of our suffering, the Spirit intercedes. And so does Christ, right? Finally, suffering is a means by which God sanctifies, keeps us, makes us holy, brings us to glory. Therefore, in the midst of our suffering, rest in Christ. Nothing in all of creation, including you, including your sin, can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So rest in Him. That's it. That's all I got. What time is it? Okay, we've got like two minutes, if that. Questions? Comments? Alrighty. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, Lord, we pray that, that your word this morning would just be an encouragement to us. Uh, Lord, if we are suffering, those who here uh, are suffering, Lord, that you would encourage them uh, with your truth of the gospel, that they are, they are uh, righteous, um, that nothing will be able to separate them from your love in Christ. Lord, I pray also that you would prepare us to suffer, uh, Lord, to face persecution that's definitely coming. Lord, I pray that you would use this text this morning to prepare us even today, Lord, for what we may face in the coming week. I pray that you would be with Pastor Nathan this morning as he preaches the word. Lord, be with us as we gather to worship your name and to receive the means of grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.